Um, it's a privilege to be with you guys and to open the word this afternoon. What I want to communicate through and, and let you know where we're going in the next 30 to 35 minutes is that we're going to read the scripture for today's focus, which is Acts 3, 11 to 26. And then I'm going to pull some key ideas from that text, mainly that God is good, that the scriptures are a masterpiece. We're going to talk about the idea of ignorance, what it was for the Jewish people at the time and what it is for us. And lastly, that repentance is a gift. And then we're going to close with communion and hopefully some moments of beautiful response before God. To frame our act series thus far, we can jump to the next slide. We're preaching through this book of Acts. It was written by Luke, who was a doctor, uh, and he was saved through the ministry of Paul and actually left his work as a doctor to travel and, and preach with Paul. But we've covered in the early chapters of Acts 1, 2, we're now in 3, covered Jesus' resurrection and ascension. We've covered the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, where he fills the 120 in the upper room, and there's flames like fire above their heads, representative of the Spirit of God, the presence of God, and they speak in many languages. Peter gives his first sermon there, and 3,000 are converted into the faith and belief in Jesus. Then we covered the fellowship of the believers. Dana did that one, how they were breaking bread, they were meeting together, they were engaging in radical generosity. The community that God was raising up was living into all that Jesus had planned for it. And last week, we covered the lame beggar who was healed at the temple gates. And so, that brings us to where we are today. A crowd has gathered after this beggar has been healed. The beggar has gone into the temple, possibly for the first time, because he was a person of defect, so he may not have been allowed in the temple before. And secondly, I'm not sure if anyone would have wanted to carry him into the temple before, because that might have been awkward, into the actual the, the, you have to understand the temple is like onions. <laughs> it has layers, Ogre. Um, the temple has layers. There's an outer court where anyone can be, and it's a very big space. And then there's a woman's court, and then there's a men's court, and then there's an inner temple, and then there's the Holy of Holies. It's, it goes in layers. And he was kind of resignated to the outer layer. So he's gone into the temple... And it says that he was walking and jumping and praising God. And I'm, presumably that wasn't quiet. Presumably he was very, very excited, as you would be, having recovered your legs after 40 years. And so it's caused a massive stir. And it says that the people were filled with wonder and amazement. And this is where we peek up. We peek up. Everyone peek up, please. This is where we pick up. Yeah, are you guys peeking? Good, perfect. Peter's speaking to the amazed onlookers. So here it is, verse 11. While the man held on to Peter and John, whether he was overwhelmed by the hundreds, potentially thousand plus people that have rushed to him, or whether he was just madly in love with Peter having healed him, uh, all the people were astonished and they came running to the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. Next slide. 
you handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. Interesting wordplay here. A murderer, you killed the author of life. You chose a murderer over the one who gives life. But God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and you know, because they knew this beggar, he had been begging there for a long time. He was 40 years old, and he had been begging at that temple for years, if not decades. They knew who he was. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man was made strong, and it is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him, through Jesus, that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. So repent then and turn to God, that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. It's a long one. Stick with me. Heaven must receive him, Jesus, until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets, for he for Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets have spoken and foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, singular, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Peter's address that we just read takes place at a spot within the temple walls, within the outer walls, the Gentile court, known as Solomon's Colonnade. In my preparation, I went online and I found some visual depictions of the space. This is a 3D digital rendering of the Jerusalem Temple Mount. And you can see the scale of it. It's massive. I didn't know this before, and it's really fun to see. This is a reference in terms of human scale. This is a set from the TV show, The Chosen, and that is actually their depiction. Thank you, home group. Everyone knows that I'm a massive fan of The Chosen. Uh, if you haven't watched The Chosen, please start watching The Chosen. It will change your discipleship. And don't watch any other TV. <laughs> oh, there's a long joke there that I'll share with you at another time. This is a set from a TV show. It shows the scale, a human in comparison with the columns. It's massive. Here is an artist's depiction of Jesus teaching in Solomon's Colonnade. Thank you, Getty Images. Um, in John 10. Ironically, or not... This is where the Jews asked him, Are you the Messiah or not? Tell us plainly and openly. And that passage from John 10 is not only linked by the physical space in which it occurred, but also thematically. And so I want to read it for you quickly. And I'm reading from the Amplified 
because I really like the extra little sauce that it sprinkles in there. <laughs> Helps me understand. It's almost good as the MSG version, but not quite. John 10. And Jesus was walking in Solomon's porch, or colonnade, in the temple area. So the Jews surrounded him and began asking him, How long are you going to keep us in doubt and suspense? If you are really the Christ, the Messiah, then just tell us plainly and openly. Jesus answered them, I have told you so, yet you don't believe me. You don't trust me and rely on me. The very works that I do by the power of my Father and in my Father's name bear witness concerning me. They are my credentials and evidence in support of me. But you do not believe and trust and rely on me because you do not belong to my fold. You are no sheep of mine. And I'm going to skip forward. I'm going to leave out a little bit and jump forward to the sheep that are my own. Oh, I'll follow this one. Where am I? Where am I? Somebody help me. Okay, there. You do not believe me and trust me, you're not my sheep. Okay, so I skipped a few. 26, we jumped to 30. I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews brought up stones to stone him. Jesus said to them, my father has enabled me to do many good deeds. I've shown many acts of mercy in your presence, the healings, the forgiveness. For which of these do you mean to stone me? And the Jews replied, we're not going to stone you for a good act, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, make yourself out to be God. So physically, this is the same space in which we find Peter giving his address, saying the same thing. Jesus is the Messiah. Keep that in mind as we work through the rest of this message. It really comes into play later when we talk about ignorance. Back to visuals of the temple. This is perhaps my favorite visual depiction of the temple's outer courts because it shows how busy the place could or would have been. The hustle and the bustle. And if there are hundreds, potentially over a thousand, if we do some math in the book of Acts, and how many they say the numbers of the church grew to, you can imagine a thousand people running to those pillars, to the, to the, the, the portico, the, the colonnade, to hear Jesus. It's quite a scene. This is a buzzing, buzzing scene. And the beggar is hanging on to Luke, I mean to, to, to Peter. We can go to the next slide. All the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. So what are the points that I want to pull out from Peter's address to the people? God is good, is the first thing. There's obviously a lot that Peter covers in his presentation of the gospel to the Jews. But there's something that really stands out to me. God's goodness. Jesus has come to forgive, to heal, and to save the message that he sends to his murderers isn't vengeance or hatred or certain destruction. No, it's forgiveness. It's the wiping away of their sin. It's times of refreshing. It's salvation through a promised Messiah. If these were the very people whose pers who by, who at their persistent request, Jesus was tortured and murdered just weeks before, isn't it mind-blowing that his message to them is an invitation back into relationship with the one they murdered? That is the power of the gospel. Love your enemies. God is good. 
His miracles, His miraculous works are evidence of His kingdom. Remember back to John, 32, John 10, 32. My Father has enabled me to do many good deeds. I have shown you many acts of mercy in your presence. This crowd, this whole event was sparked by a physical miracle, a miraculous display of God's goodness. And in that moment, God does not only restore this man's dignity and value at having been seen and raised up and healed, but also physically, tangibly, he is improving the world. It is a picture of God's kingdom breaking into the broken earth to bring about restoration. And we know that this was happening quite a lot. In chapter 2 of Acts, it tells us of the many signs and wonders that were being performed by the apostles as they were simply doing what they had seen Jesus doing. And I can imagine that it was more of this, more of lame people being given the ability to walk, more of blind eyes being opened, more of deaf ears being unstopped. And lastly, God's goodness is that he sends a Messiah to save The sermon culminates with Peter clearly articulating that God has sent his promised Messiah and that he sent him first to these people to bless them, the very ones that murdered him. And he reinforces the truth that Jesus is this promised one by reminding them of the promises of God that are woven throughout the Old Testament. He mentions Moses, Samuel, and Abraham. He's appealing to them from their own deep understanding of their own history. In the way that he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. He's saying this is not something new. This is the same God. This is the God we've all come here this afternoon to pray to. This is the Messiah promised by that God. And this leads me to my next point. The scriptures are an absolute masterpiece. This Bible is a masterpiece of God's creative ability, his story. And the prophecies that Peter references have been telling of God's Messiah for thousands of years, right there in these words and these pages. In this Bible is woven God's story into a mind-blowing tapestry of life. It covers thousands of years. It explains our origins, our purpose, our demise, and our struggle as humanity. It explains our restoration and our salvation and how we are to live the best possible human life now. It also explains what we are looking forward to, what our great hope is. This is a collection of 66 books. It was written in three languages across three continents over a span of 1,500 years. It's got poetry, wisdom, literature, letters, prophecy, and dreams. It's regarded as one of the most historically sound documents ever created. The scrutiny it has come under is unparalleled, and yet it continues to be the best-selling book ever, and comically, the most stolen book ever. Apparently, a lot of Bibles are stolen from nightstands and hotels and places such as that. I'm all for it. Stealing of the word is the one, is the one occasion where I'm like, stealing's okay. 
I can't possibly hope to begin to reveal the majesty and wonder of the scripture to you in just these short few minutes that I have, but I want to urge you to cultivate a life around the well of God's word. Fall in love with this book. Make time for this book as if it's a good friend, as if it's your favorite hobby. Think of this book the way Jesus speaks when he prays, give us our daily bread. The way Peter uses the language of refreshing. You think of water. You think of, I'm, I'm, I'm thirsty, I need a drink. Refreshing. That's what this word is to us. Get obsessed with it. Read it. Read about it. Listen to it. Discuss it. Wrestle with it. Learn it. Grapple and grow. Let it fill you with joy at times and let it cut you to the heart at others. Let it comfort you and convict you in the great dance of discipleship with Jesus. This book will make you weep with sadness, weep with conviction, and weep with joy. My journey with the Bible has been a tough one. There have been a lot of years where I didn't like it, and I couldn't even engage with it. It was... Nails on a chalkboard for me. It was a whip for my back. But now, I spend 45 minutes to an hour almost every day, time that I intentionally carve out of my day, and the time that comes at a cost, and I diligently work through these words. I follow a simple, the Bible in one year plan on my app, and I just read it, and I highlight it, and I let God show me stuff. And it's become one of the best parts of my life. It is becoming one of my favorite parts of my day, these mornings with God, as he reveals his truth through the simple act of showing up and reading. I feel some days like a kid on a treasure hunt, I'm catching glimpses of the lavish, creative genius and tapestry, and I'm so excited to chase it down. And it's just this act of showing up and cultivating this relationship, saying to him, Lord, I want to know you. I want to know your ways. They say in the Australian cattle farming world, there are two ways to keep your cows on your land. The one is that you build a big fence, and maybe you electrify it or put spiky things on it. And the other is that you build a well. And when you build a well, the cattle learn that the well is the source of their life, and they don't stray from it. You see, for many years for me, this was a fence. But God intends for this to be a well. This is a place where you get life. This is a place where his spirit flows through ordinary words and it brings life. Jesus was a promised Messiah, a suffering servant. And here in his address to the people, Peter, who we know was an uneducated fisherman, is using the scripture to reveal deep, life-altering truth. He's masterfully connecting the dots and the weaving of God's promise through the scriptures. 
And it's obvious that he's been with Jesus because now he's quoting Isaiah like a pro. Jesus' passion for God's word has rubbed off on this uneducated fisherman who is now dialed into scripture. And he reveals through knowledge and understanding of their own texts that Jesus was, in fact, the promised one. Look, it's right here, he says, in Moses, in Abraham. And several times in his sermons, he re- in his sermon, he references a section of the prophet Isaiah, a section known to some theologians as the servants' songs. It's a chunk of Isaiah between 49 and 53 that are messianic prophecy in their nature. We're going to jump briefly into Isaiah 53, which is the most prolific messianic prophecy. Isaiah, on the next slide, is saying these things 740 years before Jesus is even born. Listen to these words, and this is a very, very short snippet of a much longer chapter. I want you to go away and read it and think about Jesus on the cross as we read these words, knowing that this man had no idea Crucifixion wasn't even invented at the time that he's writing this. He has no idea. Surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. It's by his wounds that we are healed. And we're all familiar with those, right? Because we're like, yeah, of course, that's talking about Jesus. This is 740 years before Jesus. And it goes on and on in Isaiah. Here's a snapshot on the next screen of just 16. Sorry, it's hard to see, but that that kind of light red area is a, a grid of 16 prophecies that Jesus fulfills in Isaiah alone. Now for a fun little mind-melting moment. A professor at Westmont College, actually before I say that, theologians have put forward that Jesus has fulfilled up to 456 prophecies throughout scripture. Okay, let's have that number in mind, 456. A professor at Westmont College has calculated the mathematical probability of one man fulfilling the major prophecies made concerning the Messiah. The estimates were worked out by 12 different classes representing some 600 university students. Once completed, he submitted his figures for review to a committee of the American Scientific Association. Upon examination, they verified that his calculations were dependable and accurate in regard to the scientific material presented. After examining only eight different prophecies, they conservatively estimated that the chance of one man fulfilling all eight prophecies was one in 10 to the power of 17. If anyone is able to read that number, Please go ahead. I stop at trillion. I don't know what's beyond trillion. That's for just eight. To illustrate how large the number of 10 to the power of 17 is, a figure with 17 zeros, the professor gave this illustration. If you mark one of 10 tickets and place all those tickets in a hat 
and then thoroughly stir them up and then ask a blindfolded man to draw one, his chance of getting the right ticket is one in 10. That's our baseline. Now suppose that we take 10 to the power of 17, that many silver dollars, and lay them on the face of the state of Texas, which is about 268,000 miles squared. Next slide. For reference, that's the size of a silver dollar. I don't know why he chose a silver dollar. It was a convenient size for him. I've never seen one myself. Placed over the state of Texas, they will cover the whole state two feet deep. I mean, how many of those does it take to two feet deep? Hundreds? Now mark one of those silver dollars, then stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the whole state, and then blindfold that man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wants, but he has to pick one of the silver dollars that has the special mark on it. What chance would he have of getting the right one? That's the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these things, these eight prophecies, and having them all come true in any one man. That's eight. Did I mention 456? The number gets so astounding that they say in the, in the realm of mathematical probability, it's pretty much, they just call that impossible. It goes up to like 10 to the power of 150 something. It's, it's just nonsensical. And this is just one example of the marvels within this book that we're invited to explore. This book is more than you think it is. It is more powerful than you know. Get into it. Because the more that we do, the less that we'll have of my next point. Ignorance. In verse 17, Peter's sermon, he gives, he mentions ignorance. And their ignorance was that they didn't recognize the Messiah. It's likely that some of these people would have been at the crucifixion and at Peter's sermon and his first sermon, and they're here again, and they still have not recognized him. It almost seems contradictory to hear Peter say to the Jews that they acted in ignorance. Didn't Jesus come with all of the signs as we've seen in Scripture? Yes. And yet they were ignorant of the fact that he was incarnate. John 1.1 says he came to his own, but they did not receive him. You see, they expected him to come not in lowly grace, but rather as a mighty military deliverer. And they looked on Jesus as an imposter. And they thought that this guy is an imposter and we're probably doing God a favor by killing him. He didn't fit their mold. What's our mold? Jesus didn't fit into their military deliverer that was going to come and free them from the oppressive hand of the Romans and do what they wanted him to do. Give them their freedom and independence and make them a successful and powerful nation once again. Yay for us. In Southern California, Orange County, 2024, what is our mold of God that we want him to fit into that he just won't? Is it that he's a nice addition to our lives? The president of our Sunday social club? And he adds something to my already comfortable life? Could it be that we think of Jesus as our fourth layer of insurance? We've got medical insurance, life insurance, car insurance, and then eternity insurance. And that's Jesus. Is our ignorance that we see discipleship to Jesus and actual obedience to the things that he says as optional? 
All we need is to get our get out of hell card punched and the rest is optional. The rest is for those really committed Christians. Could it be that we're so busy building our kingdoms of wealth and comfort and success and influence that we're ignorant of the kingdom that he's building? You see, Jesus' invitation to discipleship is a life where you lay down your life to serve others, where we consider others better than ourselves, where we engage in radical self-denial and radical generosity in order to meet the needs of others, where we love our enemies the way that he loved his enemies. Preparing for the sermon happened to coincide in a time in my life where I felt like God was pointing out some major ignorances, and one of them was around my understanding of eternal life. And I'm meant to have a book right now to read from. Where is it? Over there. Apologies. Too many moving pieces. In the movie, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, when King Arthur and his knights come to the castle they've been seeking, lying between them and the castle is a bottomless abyss, and a wizened old bridge keeper guards the only bridge that allows access. If they can give the correct answer to his question, they're allowed to cross. If not, they're cast into the abyss. And John Ortberg, who wrote this book, says, I believe that this is how many people today think about salvation. When we die, we're either headed for the castle, heaven, or the abyss, hell. And salvation is simply knowing the right answer that God has to allow you to cross the bridge. The problem is Jesus doesn't talk about salvation that way. He doesn't talk about eternal life that way either. In fact, Jesus and the entire New Testament, for that matter, define eternal life only once with great precision and in a way that has been largely lost in our day. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God. And as I've read this book, I've been cut and realized that I need to come to a place of repentance. This is my last point. Repentance is a gift. The good news of Jesus' gospel is repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. If there's anything that I can do significantly today, I want to help to redefine repentance. You see, I had come to understand, I don't know why or how, but I'm sure many share this understanding of repentance as something pretty awful. A shameful, groveling type of apology deeply rooted in condemnation, It's been used in such an aggressive and arrogant way by hurting, misguided people that are clutching for meaning and significance. But Jesus brings his good news and it is a call and invitation to repentance. So it must be good. Romans 2.4 tells us God's kindness leads us to repentance. So what does he mean? What is the response that Peter is calling this crowd to? Having doled out the conviction of how they murdered the author of life, he gives them this invitation. They've seen a miracle. 
He reveals the promised Messiah through, through the scripture. He declares the one you've killed is alive. God raised him and that we are witnesses and he invites them to repent. The original word for repentance is metanoia. And it literally means to change your thinking, to change your action, your direction. It is not associated with feelings or guilt or condemnation or shame. It is a response word. It is an action word. One pastor puts it this way. Repentance literally means turning around, moving in an opposite direction. It's an action. It's not meant to be about feeling shame or feeling bad. Instead, it's about feeling differently and therefore acting differently, thinking differently. Peter experienced deep repentance just weeks before on the beach where Jesus reinstates him because he had just weeks before denied Jesus. As Jesus is getting tried, the cock crows and and Peter has denied Jesus three times. Imagine the conviction of his own ignorance at that time. And here is the same man standing up saying, I know you acted in ignorance. And in his own brain, I can imagine him saying, as did I. I just didn't get it back then. And yet Jesus reinstates him. And I can imagine him saying, I'm sorry, I just didn't get it. And this is the same thing Jesus calls us to today, to come and to see him, to know him, to experience him, and to allow the new understanding and revelation of him to reveal all the ways in which we just didn't get it back there. And to move forward and to grow and to become more free and more alive and more comfortable in ourselves, more secure in him, more invested in his kingdom than in ours, to become more like him himself. Repentance is the ongoing process of being made more like Jesus through revelation, conviction, and response. Through letting go and allowing God to wipe away your sin and to send times of refreshing and to breathe new life into your being, ultimately bringing about your salvation. I'm going to end there. If you can skip forward to the resources slide. I'm going to leave these up. These are books that I want you to read, and this is my Bible app and my study Bible, which I always tote every sermon because it's such a helpful asset for me. And it has been part of the change in my relationship with God's Word because it's so helpful. We're going to respond now. I want to give you one more definition of repentance that has really helped me. Repentance is allowing new revelation to transform an old way of being. And so when we see God with more clarity, when we see more of his goodness, when we see more of who he truly is, and we realize, I just didn't get it back then, he gives us this invitation to come and lay that down and take up the new and better understanding and have it transform our lives.